You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. And welcome back to Thunder Quack Perfect 10. I'm your host, Michael Cohen. Every episode, we dive deep with a special guest into a piece of pop culture they adore. What is a Perfect 10? I'm glad you asked. A Perfect 10 is a piece of pop culture media we love unconditionally. Is it objectively a 10 out of 10? Not necessarily, but to our guest, it's a masterpiece. So sit back, get comfy, and let's find some joy talking 10 things I hate about you with Ty Black. Ty, welcome back to Perfect Ten once again. Uh, Hi. <laughs> we are we are round, rounding out our trilogy uh, as we as we promised that we would. Um, we're 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 finishing off our Heath Ledger trilogy. When we started out doing a Knight's Tale, this was not a plan. <laughs> <laughs> no. But then when we did our second episode together, and it was Casanova, it was like. Well, now we've done two. We have we have to do a third one. Like it's like we are both fans of the Star Wars, and (laughs) so uh, if there's an opportunity to trilogize a thing, then we must do so. Right? It's a it's a compulsion. So so here (laughs) we are. Um, But the great thing about this is that like, and we'll talk about this. There's a there actually there's a lot to connect these three movies and yeah. to create a trilogy around it. But I like I like that we're actually kind of going back to the beginning with Heath Ledger, with this one. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. Yeah, it is. It's the start of Heath Ledger's like truly magnificent career. So mm-hmm. it'll be a fun one to talk about. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, uh, I think I think we we because you've been on the podcast before and people know who you are and all that. I mean, if they don't, go check out Wit and Folly on YouTube and watch all of Ty's amazing videos analyzing all sorts of things, hero's journey, heroine's journey, all all the awesome stuff that you do. But I think everybody knows you, so we can just like get right yeah. into it. I think I think we're good. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, no no ado required. I <laughs> <clears throat> so before we get into it, let's start with the uh, with, with the precursor. What is 10 Things I Hate About You? Uh, so here we go. Today, we're stepping back into the hallowed halls of high school, the land of teenage drama, and a world of pre-internet shenanigans as we conclude our Heath Ledger trilogy with the 1999 teen comedy classic, 10 Things I Hate About You. This contemporary adaptation of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew is a perfect blend of humor, heart, and teenage angst. Starring Heath Ledger, Julia Stiles, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Larissa Olenek, the film takes us on a roller coaster ride through the halls of Padua High, where rebellion, romance, and absurd mischief take center stage. From secret wagers to prom night fiascos, 10 Things I Hate About You is more than just a teen comedy. It's a timeless tale of the unpredictable nature of love. So whether you're reliving the 90s nostalgia or discovering this gem for the first time, Grab your favorite crop top, silence your beeper, and get ready for a perfect 10 exploration of love, laughter, and hijinks as we celebrate the nonsensical magic of teen romance. You think, did, did I capture it? Did I did I encapsulate 10 <laughs> things I hate about you? 
I 100% think so. And it's funny thinking about the 90s nostalgia factor because yeah. I've seen this movie so many times, um, even, you know, beyond the 90s, beyond the early 2000s. And it's it's still something that I'm like, I can feel like being there. It doesn't feel foreign. Yeah. You know, it doesn't feel nostalgic necessarily to me. It just kind of feels like it's part, it's kind of a part of me as of now. So, so yeah, it's really, it's it's always wacky to me to see people talk about the nostalgia of it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's uh, <laughs> it, it, the, the movie when it starts, right. Cause I think it's like the touchstone logo or whatever. And mm-hmm. it starts with like this obnoxious guitar riff situation. Um, <laughs> and then that sort of transitions, it fades into um, a, a song that immediately places us yes. in time where we are. And that's one week by the bare naked ladies. And yes. I like uh, Crystal and I were sitting to watch this last night to prep. And, and uh, it, this is one of her favorite movies of all time. Like this, this <laughs> actually, it actually, I think it might be her favorite movie of all time. She's it's difficult. She never wants to quantify that stuff, but yeah. like, I think it might be. Um, <laughs> that's a good one to have as your it favorite is, like, it was, it it's definitely like in my top 10 for sure yeah and it like i like lost it like i like like <laughs> the, like the bare naked ladies start playing and i was like this movie is so great like already yeah. this is this is i am having the best time and i granted i've seen this movie like over 10 times right? yeah like um but it is one that like she had on dvd when we first started dating uh, a thousand years ago. Um, I, <laughs> it's all 19 years ago. I, she had like four DVDs and this was one of them. Nice. And, uh, and I, I, yeah, like, like she would put it on constantly. Like we would put it on and then basically go to sleep, like fall asleep with it playing. Oh. <laughs> um, and so like, I've obviously seen it a million times, but, but it has been a very long time since I've sat down and watched it. And yeah. so, that that music hit and i was like holy crap and then it does like the pan down to the to the four girls in the in the i i you know convertible yeah you know sort of jeep ish type vehicle um very uh zoolander ish right like that's what zoolander was making fun of when zoolander uh, came out because this was like the thing i mean it's a mean girls uh 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 half a decade later comes along and like makes fun of this as well. Right. Like, yeah, like, this idea is iconic. Girl, yeah. Like, but this is one, it, it's so funny because so many of the things that are in this movie are the things that like are lampooned later on, but yes. this movie is actually sincere with it. Like it's, mm-hmm. it, it, this is one of the places where it comes from. So mm-hmm. I, it was just really funny to watch it with that context with that right. sort of like that nineties nostalgia lens of like, Oh yeah. Like this is, this is actually where those tropes originate. From, yeah. Right. Absolutely. Which, there's, yeah. there are not a lot of things that you can look back at and go like, Oh, this actually like created the trope like this, like, and, and this era 1999, I mean, uh, you're talking about this is the same year that she's all that came out. I know that for a fact because uh, one of one of my greatest jokes in the in 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 the history of of uh, uh, my goofing off in public <laughs> was in the lineup for the Phantom Menace, um, and uh, 
they're they're right about to, to this was back in the day the, uh, for the younger listeners um you had to stand in a lineup outside of the movie theater uh yep. and then they would sell you tickets like right before the movie started um you didn't you didn't buy them on your phone um you know three months in advance um so we're all lined up we've been lined up since noon that day to see the phantom menace i lived in a small town so it wasn't as crazy it was as it was other places but uh we've been there all day we've ordered pizza to the line like all of that sort of craziness has happened it's like 11 45 right and the person from the theater comes out and and uh, is is like oh so in, in a few minutes we're gonna do this blah 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 and you guys are all gonna get to see star wars and everybody cheers it's this loud huge cheer and then it dies down and and i'm standing next to a poster for the movie she's all that and i go you mean this isn't the lineup for she's all that and <laughs> a few people laugh but i know that that's one of the funniest jokes that i've ever made um <laughs> It just it, it went. I think it maybe went over some people's heads, but but uh, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it was yeah. So I know, like nineteen ninety nine, it's like that. The Matrix, you know, yeah. the Phantom Menace, like like that's where we're living, right? But yeah. yeah, like this is this is the the like the pinnacle, the peak of teen drama comedies, uh, yeah. these teen dramedies, right? And and this one, mm-hmm. I think actually, I, I never saw it in the theater. I only ever saw it after the fact on VHS, mm-hmm. actually, not even on DVD. Um, yep. Rented it from the Blockbuster. <laughs> yep. I, I, but yeah, like like this along with like, like She's All That and and a few others. Um, mm-hmm. That like they, they, they set these templates. I mean, it's like <laughs> when I, when when i the the when the bet happens right well like there's there's yeah. there's two moments because there's the first one where he's like i i oh i like i'll bet you i could blah 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 and, and then it's like like we're not gonna do that and then but then later mm-hmm. on there is like another wager of like you can't you can't do this sort of thing um and then and then paying somebody off it's like is it a, is it a teen movie if there isn't a bet or a wager or um, or money somehow changing hands in relation to uh, losing your virginity or right. dating a girl that doesn't want to be dated or, you right. know, like they all like it. It's in it's it in every that. single one of them. Um, yep, it is. <laughs> women women were were I, I definitely being treated as objects in yeah. these films. But yeah, uh, we didn't. Well, we knew better. But mm-hmm. like we didn't quite know better yet, you know. Like <laughs> it, it, it was a it was a step on the path towards understanding that this was uh, maybe not the best way to treat female characters in your stories. But uh, right, but yeah. but it is a it's a staple of the genre for sure. Is like ah, oh, but you can't get her to kiss you, and then it just <laughs> escalates from there. Yeah, well, it does make it. This one, it's funny because yeah, like you said, there are a lot of other movies and other stories that do the same thing, especially within like a high school teen setting, mm-hmm. uh, even in college ones. But this, but this does make it more complicated uh, because it's not just about like the bet or whatever. It's not just about like oh yeah, I could need the money or whatever. Uh, it's it is uh, totally hinging upon Bianca and Kat's relationship and the role mm-hmm. that their father sets so there is a like kind of between the lines uh message of that bianca is actually the one who is 
doing all of this, right? She's the she's the reason for the money exchanging hands for her sister. Uh, and she's the one controlling these men to to try to get what she wants, which is and she's ultimately using them to get, you know, Joey, uh, the popular guy. So yeah. there is a little bit it it is between the lines and it is kind of running underneath like the current of the the story but there is a lot of interesting I think feminist viewpoints in this and a lot of that is to do with the fact that it is written by two women so so yeah do we want to give the context of like how this movie got made because it does I think you touched on some of it too like the 1990s or it's at least the script was written in I think probably the early 1990s or the mid 1990s. Um, and it was obviously adapted a lot because they couldn't sell it. Uh, it was written by Kristen Smith and Karen McCullough. Uh, these are the same women who wrote like Ella Enchanted, which is another one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, Legally Blonde, The House Bunny. Like they are very talented comedy mm. writers and they write about women and they have some of the most iconic, you know, written moments in film regarding women. And it's just great. Uh, they are very strange. I like watched a few interviews with them. They're, they're both very strange. They're like, you know, they're older women. They've been writing a, a really long time. They're kind of like these older, you know, first, second wave feminists. Um, yeah. And so they're writing typically younger girls from their perspective uh, and I just think it's a it's it obviously worked for the time that they were writing a lot. Uh, they're they're still writing, but they're not you know it's not as like iconic as it was during this time period. But they definitely hit some notes that a lot of younger women related to. Uh, so that that says something about about what they were doing. Um, and also like they used a director for this movie, uh, Gil. Can't remember his last name. Um, he wrote. Uh, he Gil, actually. Gil Younger. Yeah. yeah, and he did a lot of comedies during that time. A lot of comedy shows, like Ellen. He was a director on. He and he was a very, very, very successful uh, comedy director for years, even after this movie. And he brought a lot of like the slapstick stuff. So he was the one who came up with like the motorcycle incident and the arrow in the butt you know mm-hmm. so and the writers were like okay like because you know they had been selling their script for so long it was like all right if that's what you know if that's what the, you want this movie to be then sure so they ha- they did not have a lot of that like slapstick comedy in there but he added it you know and mm-hmm. i think it's a great pairing uh in the movie because it really does come together in like a wacky ridiculous way just perfect for a teen movie or at least that's what established the you know the wackiness that we get in all the teen movies afterwards like this is kind of this merging of these two ideas about Mm -hmm. these two women writing about how difficult and how challenging it is to be a girl in this in this time and then putting that together with this slapstick comedy is just it's so perfect so so yeah, uh, this was like the first acting gig for pretty much all these actors, uh, or not the first acting gig. This was like the one that kind of catapulted all of them into stardom. Mm-hmm. 
they had all done like smaller projects before. And the only one that was on something notable was Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He was on Third Rock from the Sun. And in order to convince him to be in the movie, they told him that he was going to be the Han Solo of the film. (laughs) (laughs) That's how they like described it to him, which I mean, that's arguable. I would say (laughs) that he would actually be the Luke of the film, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but that's apparently what convinced him to come on to it. And I mean, obviously we needed him in that movie. He's perfect. Yeah. But so, that's a, but but that's funny because like that's how you get Luke to do something too is that you tell him that he'll be the Han Solo of it and then Luke will do it right like you can't tell <laughs> Luke that he'll be the Luke because Luke doesn't want to be Luke Luke wants to be Han right like yeah. but the thing about Han is that Han is only ever pretending to be Han and is never actually Han to begin with which is why Heath Ledger's character is the Han Solo of this movie because yep. he's introduced as a ne'er-do-well and it turns out that he's actually like you know i uh, 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 he is a feminist like i yep. i good guy with with a heart of gold right right like, he's yeah, just misunderstood so yeah he is actually han solo <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> that's so funny yeah and uh well, we'll get into more of like this idea of like expectations versus reality and then the irony and the sarcasm mm. that kind of comes with the source material it's really fascinating there's a lot of like playing with tropes and a lot of misdirection um, in both the original source material and in the movie and the way they rewrote it. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention was that it was Julia Stiles like choice to cry during the poem reading. Hmm. Uh, they didn't write it that way. They had kind of written it more as like a, more of like a staunch admission that a reluctant admission Whereas when Julia went to go read it, she just immediately started breaking down in tears <laughs> during the filming. And they were like, this is great. This is great. Keep doing that. Uh, and then also that the writers were told that they had to uh, get rid of the mom. So the mom was at, like uh, Kat and Bianca's mom was actually in the uh, kind of final edition of the script before it was being produced. And the studio said, you know, we have to give another reason for why Kat is so bitchy. Hmm. Let's get rid of the mom. Let's have the mom have left them. And that's why she's so bitter. And initially, Karen and Kristen were like, well, this is just pure misogyny. Like you're telling us that women can't, you know, be angry at the world for simply being against them like they can't be angry simply for being women (laughs) and all the other things that happen to cat too that are already baked into the script with joey and Mm -hmm. just for the fact that cat is a you know third wave feminist uh and she is reading things that are not being taught in school and that it makes her angry and the studio was like no we have to have a more like uh uh, freudian reason for why she's so mad uh but they cut it because they wanted the movie to get made you know because that's how things work especially in 1999 so Mm -hmm. so yeah so that's kind of the the behind the scenes of how the film got made um and with that i want to segue into like the taming of the shrew Mm -hmm. because i was like i was a huge shakespeare fan when i was a kid and when i i got into a shakespeare company like i you know, was involved in like 
the first Shakespeare company in my hometown. And, you know, we studied and we, we did the acting stuff. We went to festivals and performed and all of that. And I think I was in middle school. So I was pretty young. Um, and when I found out that there were movies that were adapted from Shakespeare, I was like, this is awesome. So started, you know, watching anything I could get my hands on that was like an adaptation. And even even the ones that were like staying true to the material, I mm-hmm. anything that was on film, I, I wanted to watch it. Because, you know, we didn't have like, we didn't have a lot of culture where I'm from. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of plays uh, unless you went, you know, into the city, which is which is where the Shakespeare company was. But, but yeah, so uh, the taming of the shrew is funny. I, I, I had always known it to be kind of like Shakespeare's most misogynistic play, but that's really, I think an unfair, uh, an unfair judgment against it. Cause Shakespeare was like incredibly in touch with the way that the common class thought the way that they watched farce you know farce and sarcasm and irony and all these things are you know that was kind of the peak of comedy uh during his time and a lot of the times like we try to look back on some of his plays with a lens a perspective from today and that's just not if you ignore the context you're not understanding how people actually watched the play yeah so allow me to give some context of the taming of the shrew which like i said is considered to be shakespeare's most misogynistic play uh it starts out with like a frame story this is pretty common it's a tale within a tale where a beggar slash drunkard named christopher sly uh he's you know drinking at a pub and this nobleman is kind of you know poking fun at him and he tries to convince this guy that he was actually a nobleman too, and that he had simply lost his memory. He he had forgotten what his life was, and they stage a play for the for the beggar for the drunkard for uh, for Christopher, Christopher Sly to show him everything that he's forgotten about his life, and it's played up, you know, very 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 much as a farce. It's played up as like this man is kind of lying to him. He's making fun of him. And then the rest of, or pretty much all of the rest of the play is the play within a play uh, about supposedly Christopher Sly's life. So automatically, as the audience is watching this, they can see that, you know, if it's a, if it's a play within a play, a story within a story, you're automatically questioning the va- validity of it. It's mm-hmm. a big fish story. It's an exaggeration, right? And Sly is actually like it's being shown that the main character of Patrick, who's you know Patrick in Ten Things, his name is uh, Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew. At the very by the very end of the play, essentially he's being convinced that he's the master of his wife, right? He's tamed the shrew, um, but he. But Christopher Sly has neither a wife nor any authority of any kind. So this is a male fantasy. It's it's a it's male wish fulfillment. And that's how the audience would have reacted to it. So mm-hmm. about the misogynistic stuff, essentially the story is about Petruchio, 
Patrick, uh, who initially pretends that Catherine, Cat, her words don't bother him. You know, and and the whole thing, the frame is exactly the same. The the structure, sorry, the structure of the story is essentially the same as Ten Things I Hate About You. Uh, there's the, you know, uh, Bianca cannot marry until her sister marries thing. Uh, both of the men pretend to be tutors to the women in order to woo them. And what Petruchio does to get Catherine to fall in love with him is he doesn't let any of her words hurt him. He just like lets it roll off his back. He's like, it's not a big deal. Uh, And he continues to just allow her to be how she is, which is great for her, you know? And she's like, oh, this man actually accepts me for who I am. So they get married. And then as soon as they get married, he drops the mask and he withholds food and drink from her in order to make her compliant. He literally like tames her and gets her to accept him as her master and her king. So this is where a lot of critics get kind of thrown off because this is clearly misogynistic behavior. It's really messed up but like i said the audience is understandably reading this as a farce Mm -hmm. um it's a falsehood and it's you know ultimately it's pure irony like kate's final speech to the audience which is a parallel to you know like 10 things with her final poem where she lists the 10 things that she hates about him her final speech is essentially instructing the women in the audience. It's read, it's to the audience. It's saying that you should be submissive to your husband and you should see them as your king. And this is like a tiny little excerpt from it. She says, I'm ashamed that women are so simple to offer war when they should kneel for peace or to seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve love and obey but (laughs) the reigning monarch of the time was queen elizabeth the first so like they knew like literally they are being ruled by a woman right now all of them so this this could not be taken seriously so the reality and the message of the play which ends on this note it ends with this speech uh, is that this type of dominant, submissive, you know, male-female relationship, it really only exists in fiction. And it's neither sustainable nor is it ethical to have such a power imbalance in any relationship. So, so yeah, so that's the, <laughs> that's the source material that we're working with here. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I mean, like, that, that would have been... Uh, a condemnation of the church, right? Like, cause that's mm-hmm. where, that's where that messaging would have been coming from at that time is that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cause the, the women needing to be quiet and uh, subservient and all of that, like that is very, um, is like, it's, it's actually wild misinterpretation of, of the text, uh, from the, from, <laughs> from the, the new Testament. But, um, I, 
because it is it is people of that era not understanding historical context and then it's us not understanding the historical context of them not understanding the historical context yes i uh, which is funny because like, like what you're seeing there is like yeah uh, uh, this ideology like two steps removed um mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's it's really smart and it's complicated for its time it's complicated mm-hmm. for like what it's dealing with and what the message are that it's trying to get across. Because if you can imagine, if you've ever seen a Shakespeare play and how it's actually played, you can imagine these characters being super over the top with their acting compared to like with Romeo and Juliet, which is, you know, a tragedy where you have a little bit more sincerity to how they're speaking and how they're saying things about how they love each other. Whereas, you know, Catherine's final speech is going to be something way over the top, Um, you know, saying to these women, you should look at your husband as your master and your king and you should obey him. And the women in the audience are laughing probably at this whole thing or scoffing. Right. Yeah. Uh, And that keys in, you know, to everyone else that's watching. Oh, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely absurd because it is. And that's that's what it's supposed to be. but there have been lots of, like I said, there's lots of ter- interpretations and lots of, you know, talk about what The Taming of the Shrew does successfully and not. And then also how, you know, adaptations have handled the source material. There have been adaptations like in the 1960s where, you know, they've, they've done a up-to-date ad- adaptation of, of the story and, they have very very much in the style of the 1960s uh the woman kind of falls into his arms and you know or the catherine character falls into petruccio's arms and is like you know i'm finally given to you you are my master you are my king kind of thing mm-hmm. uh and clearly that's the wrong <laughs> interpretation of yeah. of the text but then you have 10 things uh that that steps away from the frame within a frame story it set, it steps away from the from the sarcasm, but it maintains the irony. Uh, and the irony is that of young love and teenage angst and, you know, all those fun, fun, fun things, which we'll, we'll definitely talk more about. So, so yeah. Uh, how did you feel about kind of like the, I wouldn't say misdirection. I know you've seen it a lot of times, but mm-hmm. uh, from the point of view of like, how they messed with stereotypes and expectations and all of that. Like we talked about how it's similar to other teen movies, but how is it different? Do you, do you feel like there's a lot of differences? Well, I, I think, I think like what you were talking about and, and the idea that um, like from, from a dramaturgical perspective, when we look at, at the original source material, it's a farce and it's meant to be played in, in this very like over the top arch way. That's where mm-hmm. I think um, the, the director where, where Jürgen comes in and goes like, we need to make the world absurd. Right. Yeah. Um, and the characters start absurd. All of our characters start very arch. Right. Like they're all yeah. like like I really uh, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt's character at the beginning, Cameron. He shows up, he arrives on the scene and he instantly falls in love with this girl. <laughs> like like just I instantly. burn, I pine. Yeah. yeah. And and 
Um, the more that I thought about it sort of since last night, I'm like, he has no character. He has, he has absolutely zero character. The only thing we know about him, I made the joke, uh, like sort of towards the end of the movie, um, to Crystal where I was like, none of these people have parents except for this dad. Like he's, he's the, he's the only real adult in the entire story. Cause all of the other adults, the teachers certainly are cartoonish to say the least. Right. Like, right. Like they are there, there it's everything in this world is there to tell us that this is not real. Like this isn't reality. Like, Hey, Hey, heads up. This is silly. This is a cartoon, right? Yeah. Um, Which makes people more of, it it gives people more like extreme traits. Like if you see it like that. Yeah. And, and it allows us, I I think it allows us to let go a little bit. Right. Like, like when, when, um, when things are played dramatically, when things are played for realism, then our brain starts going, it's the, it's the uncanny Valley thing, right? It's like our brain Mm -hmm. starts trying to find the flaws with the story. Whereas with this, it's like the, the story is intentionally and inherently flawed, right? Like because it is a farce and because it is trying to point out to you that the way things are, are not, it's not correct. Right. Like if, if you took that logic and you pushed it to its extreme, um, then you start to see how silly it actually is. Right. Right. Uh, Which is how that connects. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah, So, so I, I think they like do it that so well. <laughs> his his direction in that sense is the thing. It's I think it's the difference between this being another teen movie, mm-hmm. you know, where like I like she's all that. I like American Pie. I I I like those movies. They're fun. I don't necessarily want to watch them, right? But yeah. with this, the Shakespeare angle of it, but then beyond that, the that that direction um and that world. I think is is what ends up making something so very placed at a specific point in time right. still timeless because it's a it's it's all a caricature of of the time period of the source material of the subject matter of the character tropes and archetypes right like everything is everything is up for um scrutiny in mm-hmm. in in the sense that like, it's all like, like we can laugh at anything in this movie. Um, yeah, that's true. Everyone is made fun of to an extent. Everyone yeah. is flawed. You can laugh at, yeah, you can laugh at Bianca. You cannot laugh at cat because they're all extremes. They're all stereotypes at the beginning. Yeah. 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 I mean like, like Cameron is so puppy dog throughout the whole thing. And and the the scene in the party when it like just sort of sits on him with that sad face where it's like he looks like he's about to cry, but he looks like he's about to cry because his ice cream fell on the ground, not because <laughs> he's in love with this girl. Right. Like, but that's kind of the point is that he is so dopey and innocent. Yeah. Um, he's like this pure soul in, in this very uh, almost like cynical uh, scenario right every everybody yeah. else is a cynic and but mm-hmm. he is he but but it's good like he's a, he's meant to be the everyman of the story right like we look right. at 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 patrick 
and we look at the Petruchio character and it's like very similar to Casanova. It's very similar to, mm-hmm. to his, uh, William in, in a Knight's Tale where it's like, he's this aspirational character, right? Right. Um, where he's very much the Han Solo, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas Cameron is the Luke Skywalker, who is the everyman, the Peter Parker, right? That yeah. like Peter Parker works because nothing ever works out for this guy, but he still gets up and he still keeps going and he still tries. Right. So when he has yeah. his moment of like, telling her off telling bianca off in in the car it's like we're there with him because we're like like you've just walked all over this poor guy like he doesn't (laughs) deserve it all he's all all he's asked for is a chance right like Mm -hmm. um and you've lied to him this whole time sort of thing and so you know when she kisses him then we cheer which like really if you look at it on its face it's like that it actually like She's actually kind of the worst, right? In yeah. real life, it's like, so you treated him like garbage. And then when the other guy turned out to not be what you wanted, then he's your backup. He's a default, right? Like, right. Um, or oh, oh, yeah. lucky you that he's still there for you to I mean, right? Like, right, right. And I think, I think obviously what uh, it's attempting to happen, and, and you can only really see it if you compare the other things that are going on in the, in the story. Like you have, you have Pat, or you have pa- Patrick and Kat and you have Bianca and Cameron and their, their relationships are like mirroring each other in a weird mm-hmm. way. Uh, because when, when Cameron finally calls out Bianca on her bad behavior, she reacts with, Oh my God, you finally have been truthful with me. Whereas most people like, you know, they want me to be a certain way. So I act a certain way. And then like, we just kind of all are fake. Everybody's fake yeah. in her world uh, except for her sister. And then you have like Kat and Patrick and what, as soon as like they start being real with each other, they go at each other's throats, you know, uh, they start, they're angry. And it's, it's really interesting because it shows you that like, it's kind of this way of like breaking down their to get to vulnerability. You have to poke at each other. Uh, and that's the only way that you can like really, you know, find common ground. And it's the only way that you can uh, open yourself up to, to love and, for Bianca, it was really easy because he already loved her. You know, Cameron already loved her and Cameron mm-hmm. was very simple in his affections. And Bianca is very simple in her affections too. She just wants she just wants someone to take care of her and to love her and to be there for her. Um, whereas like Kat and Patrick are a lot more, you know, they've been a lot more jaded by the world. They have a lot more walls built up. Uh, so as soon as one of them takes a chisel to it, the other one, you know, is like, whoa, 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 hold on. (laughs) Like, don't you try to change me? Uh, so it, yeah, I think within the context, uh, it's, it's clearly a good thing, but you're right. There are some things you're like, yeah. Well, hold on there. That's not really fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's fine. It, I I think I think the difference is like the with with the younger ones, the uh it's it's they're both looking for acceptance. And yeah. then with with um uh, with Kat and and Patrick, they're they're both looking for challenge, right? Like Yeah, yeah. Um, That's what they like, need in a relationship. Yeah. Right? Because the uh, Cameron and Bianca are very insecure and unsure of themselves. So what right. they need is somebody to say, it's okay. You are who you are. And that's why I love you. Whereas mm-hmm. with, with Kat and Patrick, it's like, they're very, as she says, like, you're very self-assured. And he's like, that's what I tell myself every morning. Right. That was just such a great <laughs> joke. Um, but, but like, that's the thing is that they actually, what they need is somebody who, who, 
can knock them off the pedestal a little bit um in order in order to keep them humble right like that's the balance of the relationship that's where it's like that that's why in in the in the intro i wrote that it, it was about the the unpredictable nature of love right like that's that's one of those things is that is that you know it starts as as a, a job he's being paid to fall in love with her uh, or to to date her and then and then it accidentally falls in love with her finds out that mm-hmm. like this is his the it's it's his perfect match it's his other half right um yeah and that yeah. is like that i think that is often the nature of relationships that last is that you know you can you can start in a place of of I, I don't know. I don't know about this person. Right. But <laughs> then as you get to know them uh, and, you know, you know, they, they fit into your life, you find that it's like, oh, this person ultimately, ultimately this is my perspective on it. The person that you're with should be a person that makes you a better person. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. They, they should, they should challenge you where you need to be challenged and support you where you need to be supported. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that's like, that's really the most important thing in a relationship from yeah. my perspective so it's that, it's really complicated getting there but yeah it's really simple to like maintain uh and i think that's like the funny part about you know teen teens falling in love that these stories these fictional stories that we all are so drawn to mm-hmm. is that it paints the the part that is so complicated and they put it they wrap it up with a beautiful bow you know they they present it like yeah it's complicated but it's also really simple. And yeah. here it is in an hour and 30 minutes, you know, <laughs> like yeah. it's, it is taking those, those complex feelings and those things that are like really ironic. It don't make any sense. And just saying, okay, yeah, but sometimes it is really just as simple as like, you know, being true to yourself, being vulnerable with each other and allowing yourself to feel your feelings. So yeah, I, I, I love that. I love, you know, romantic comedies, uh, with young people that's they always do that and it's always so much fun um another thing I wanted to like touch on and I probably should have touched on this in the kind of more of the behind the scenes type of stuff but just like for a quick kind of context because I think it's important to talk about um we've kind of touched on it a little bit hmm. the the race and feminism stuff in the film is so <laughs> wacky uh right now like watching it last night i was like wow this does not (laughs) this probably does not hit the right tone i don't know if that's like i know that even then it probably didn't hit the right tone for a lot of people but for me and i think for a lot of people who watched it back in like you know the early 2000s uh it was it was probably one of my first forays into white feminism you know mm-hmm. and what that meant uh because mr morgan calls it out very early on yeah. in in the film and then also just in general like you know topics of inter- intersectionality like even without knowing that that word back then i you know that this is probably the first time you know that's been kind of proposed in a film that i watched and during that time uh there was a lot of stuff going on about like how young girls did not have the same opportunities as young men. Uh, and this was a realization for a lot of feminists. And this brought on like, you know, third wave feminism that all of the work that, you know, first wave feminism tried to do was not holding up because people weren't hold, people weren't doing the work, you know? Hmm. 
And so you had a lot of, because it was the 90s, you had a lot of like consumerist and capitalistic uh, solutions. So you had, we had a lot of money thrown at young women and, and a lot of money targeted, like a lot of you know, stuff targeted towards young women and girls. You had like, you know, Limited 2 and Babysitter's Club, American Girl Dolls. You had movies centered on girls all of a sudden. You had Virgin Suicides and Man in the Moon. And like I'll, some of this intersects with like the 80s a little bit, but this is like like the girlhood phenomenon. Like that was a thing back then. Mm-hmm. And on third wave feminism, you know, they're saying, they're coming back and they're saying like, we, ha- we still have a lot of work to do. And Kat in the movie, she's reading uh, The Bell Jar, which is, you know, from First Wave. And she also, you know, clearly has read The Feminine Mystique. You know, there's that cute scene where they're in the bookstore and she she gives him the, the book he was looking for. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's also, you know, First Wave feminism. So Kat is reconnecting kind of like with these the mothers of first uh, First Wave feminism and she's trying to like do her part, but she is actually rem- more reminiscent of like the second wave feminism, which is known or it's accused of being kind of mainly for white suburban women. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what she is. She is a you know suburban white woman. So it's kind of uh, doing a lot of things at once in terms of like showing that she is flawed. And she still has a lot to learn, uh, but she has exposed herself to enough knowledge that she's she's angry at the world for not, uh, you know, not changing as quickly as she wants it to change in order to accommodate her beliefs. So just it's really fascinating that it does that, because, again, uh, if you're not if you grew up in a in a household like I did, uh, you, I wouldn't have never been exposed to anything like that. And, and 10 things was just one of those movies that had to, it it actually garnered enough attention. And with that PG 13 rating could be on television at any time. (laughs) And of course, you know, I was exposed to it uh, because of that. So, so yeah, it gets a lot of flack and it should, you know, people should be critical, but, uh, just to give that perspective, I, I I find it really interesting that it was that it was able to push topics like that, and that Kristen and Karen were able to to kind of get those through mm-hmm. whenever you know when when they had to cut so much else from the from the script. So yeah, it it is it is really funny because it's 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 set in Seattle, uh, so it's the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. This is the region that I am from. I obviously I'm in Canada, but the culturally we're very similar <laughs> Vancouver to yeah. Seattle. Um, so like, like the, the cultural breakdown, like when they do that, when he does the breakdown of all of the, the, the groups. Right. Um, and you know, it's like, Oh, those guys are the Cowboys. And it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know how common that was for other people uh, for, for other areas. But like, that is definitely a thing in this region of like, you've got these kids that like have grown up in the city their entire lives. They got to drive 45 minutes to even see a horse, but they, <laughs> but they have this like attitude that like, Oh, cause, because they live in a city that was a hundred years ago, a rural area, you know, like, cause, cause sprawl <laughs> has like made it out there, but like, there's still this identity that like that, that uh that that part of town is is you know 
so far away. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's like you got there's a Walmart and a Starbucks on every corner. Like you guys live in the city. I I and That's yet so they are funny. still cowboys. And then the the um the the Rasta thing, which is yeah. just like called out so many times and it's so good. It's like like that that stuff is so relatable for me. Like I look at that and it's like like calling out like these these white guys who um I they they go the Rasta angle, which I think mm-hmm. makes it more comical, right? Mm-hmm. That like they've got the Jamaican accents and the the And the, the dreads. You know, and the dreads <laughs> and like they look like Bob Marley, right? Like yeah, but they're right. white guys. Um right. whereas I think I think really at the time that it, what that was more speaking to was like the white suburban men males right mm-hmm. that were mm-hmm. that were into like gangster rap and stuff right yeah like, having absolutely no understanding of the context of of that and uh uh and yet like their entire identity was built around it oh um, yeah i think that that was probably yeah that what you're talking about that that stereotype was probably more common through yeah. all of america uh it's funny because i because you know i grew up in the south and I would say it was really wild to see like the Seattle stereotypes because no, we did not have any of those like at yeah. all. <laughs> it was, we did not have like the pretend cowboys. We had we actually had like actual kids that were in the rodeo, you know, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, wrangling yeah. cattle and stuff. Uh, my my cousin was you know in farmers future farmers of America yeah. and doing showing showing pigs and stuff. So yeah, it it's really. Again, it's kind of like a little bit of that escapist thing. I love the fact that it's set in Seattle because it was, um, it was so foreign. Uh, it seemed like a different world. <laughs> and I think the the actual high school they shot at was actually in Tacoma. I found that out. It's yeah. in Tacoma, Washington. So it's a yeah. real, real high school. Yep, yep, real play. Uh, real, uh, yeah. It, it, everywhere that that like they they shot it all in. Seattle and the and the area, right? Tacoma is yeah. is uh, like about an hour north of Seattle or south of Seattle, but yeah. um, uh, so not Seattle proper. But I, uh, uh, it's funny because there's the moment when they're like on the on the the paddle boats, uh, and where they are in order to get that shot because they want like downtown Seattle and the Space Needle in the shot. It's like they're in the they're in like the middle of Puget <laughs> Sound, like very far away from land, and like I know that because I have driven through seattle a billion times so i'm looking at it going like you guys are really 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 (laughs) far out into the water like you should not be that far away from land i i i mean you can see you can see a marina not that far away from them but even still it's like oh even i thought that when we were watching it last who's renting you these paddle boats and then I, I, the other part of it is that like, they're very clearly on a, like a jig, uh, which like yes. normally, normally you would expect that for like a, like a driving scene, right? Mm-hmm. It's like where they put a, basically a car with no wheels on a flatbed and then they set up all of the cameras and stuff. And then the truck, the flatbed truck is driving. But from our perspective, we just see the back, like, for, like from the front yeah. of the car out the back, right? So right. it looks like that's the car that's driving. They do the same thing with this. So they're pedaling and they're pedaling like crazy. Like Heath Ledger <laughs> is pedaling so much faster than Julia Stiles, which would put that they'd be going in a circle. they aren't (laughs) moving at all they don't go anywhere because then you see the paddle boat go back like behind them 
mm-hmm. the people behind them are pedaling at like half the speed they are and they're like clipping across like they're going across the water so quick and it's like <laughs> if he ledger was really pedaling that fast that thing would just be spinning in a circle like crazy I um, thought the same thing. I had never so noticed funny. it before. <laughs> so we watch it. I was like, this is really yeah. awkward. Like I'm noticing all these like technical things. Yeah. And oh, then th- so there's, th- there's also this scene with, with, uh, with Cameron and Bianca, this, I'm just being like a, the, like a, Hey, I live in the Pacific Northwest. They're at the, <laughs> they're, they're at the Fremont troll. And it's like, first right. of all, if you live in Tacoma, the Fremont troll is like, an hour and a half, two hours away. Cause like Fremont <laughs> is in Seattle technically, but it's like a neighborhood of Seattle, but it's like, it's like into like this, this like suburban area of Seattle. Like it's, it's across the, the, the so there's like a highway. It's kind of a bridge. It's, it, it goes, it's really, really high up um, mm-hmm. to get into the city. And it's like, it's, it's just North of Seattle, but it's like in order to get into Fremont, it's like, you either got to go through downtown Seattle through the circuitous route to get there, or you have to go on the highway and the highway is a nightmare. So it's like these, these children, <laughs> these yeah. 15, 16 year olds, have like driven like two hours away from their home to, to go sit and have a conversation next to the Fremont trolls. It's so funny. It's, it's like when they film stuff in in San Francisco and it's like, you see that like a, the car chases in San Francisco are notorious for this. Shang-Chi is really bad where it's like, I, I, you'll get people do a breakdown and it's like this shot to this shot. They just traveled 45 minutes. Like (laughs) it's like the same sort of thing as if, as if Seattle is this small town, Seattle's a very like, especially when you include Tacoma, if you include like Tacoma, Bellevue, Renton, like these other areas, it's very, very big. It's a very big sprawl. Um, yeah. And it's a, and it is such a pain to get around because the Pacific Northwest is all mountains and water. So yeah, everything's like sense. built in these circuitous ways of like, unless you've got a highway that cuts straight through it. If you've got a highway that cuts straight through it, they always has traffic. So you don't take that. Um, right. But yeah, it that's just a, that's the local <laughs> perspective is like, I watch it and I'm like, what are you, where are you guys like, how are you, why are you there? Like, it just, it's so absurd. But yep. Yep. I could say the still, same thing with DC stuff. There's a lot of uh, shows yeah. that are supposed to be in DC and you watch it and you're like somebody who works at, you know, the NSA or the CIA. And then they're like biking to work and they're passing the Capitol building. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yes. That's not true. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah. Too funny. Okay. Where were we? I, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, we, 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 I, we were talking about the, the context, the, 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 the race and feminism, feminism stuff, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that was pretty much, uh, all on that topic. Um, yeah, just, but yeah, to summarize, it was just like a, it was a time where a lot of, yeah. a lot of stories were being marketed towards girls. They were about girlhood, about the, the things that women go through. It was considered to be something that could make money, yeah. uh, and and of course, with this movie, you have kind of the central, like it's not. It's funny because we talked about Casanova. We talked about The Knight's Tale previously, and those stories are Heath Ledger's stories. That it, mm-hmm. they're he is the main character. Uh, whereas in this one, Cat and her sister are the main characters, and their sisterhood, their relationship, that is the heart of the film and it's kind of what you know even though they have their own relationships with their prospective you know suitors uh 
their relationship together is what actually makes those other relationships possible because they're, they have to, they have to kind of reconcile things between themselves before they can, you know, love other people. And it, I think that's just really beautiful. Um, mm. And it is, like I said, it's a part of that, that time where studios were buying, were buying these scripts that were about girls and girlhood. So one of the other things uh, this relates to uh, is Kat's kind of, you know, it's Kat's story. Ultimately, she's the main character her relationship to music is something that I never really thought about until this, this rewatch. Um, because I don't, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, a teen during this time, but a big part of this time period was kind of coming off of, uh, the, the wave of feminism that included lots of femme punk bands and women pushing themselves into, uh, like areas in which they were typically considered unwelcome or they were creating their own spaces. Hmm. And obviously it's not the first time they created their own spaces, but this is kind of the first time where those spaces were getting really big and punk punk music especially was, you know, a, a space that women created for themselves. Like they had all uh, female rock bands, all female punk bands. And one of the things that Patrick says, you know, in the in the movie is they're just a bunch of girls who can't play their instruments. Mm-hmm. And this is very immediately afterwards uh, kind of debunked, I guess, when he goes into kind of like this lioness's den of all women who are rocking out to music. Uh, it's funny to me that they the band that they got. Uh, is a female she's you know the lead is a female singer but uh the band itself is all men <laughs> i thought that was yeah. like i was like oh well that doesn't quite live up to I, I doubt that's what they wanted like i'm sure they wanted like an all-female band but the message still comes across with all of the women <laughs> in the in the venue um and this is also kind of like like music and this kind of escape into music. Like this is Kat's way of escaping judgment and escaping the expectations that are put on her. It's a place where she can like totally be herself. And I think a lot of women like can relate to that. A lot of people in general can relate to that, but especially um, from the perspective of, I, I, I don't like to use the word girlhood because of the implications it has now. But for that time in like the in the nineties, um, when they were exploring more of like what girlhood was, or you know how it was different, how the experience of girls growing up was different from the experience of boys, uh, those are the kinds of things that they were exploring. Which was like, you know, the fact that spaces created for women were safer um, for them and they you know the kinds of areas the kind of spaces they made for themselves and all of that you know it was all um this was all very new you know um or at least it was new in the straight uh white woman atmosphere hmm. so going into this like i called it like a lioness's den uh patrick and cat kind of both let the mask slip for like a split second 
And even though Patrick is kind of like pretending to, he's kind of pretending to be this one way. He's pretending like the things that she says don't bother him, all that kind of thing, right? Just as like Petruchio does in Taming of the Shrew. Uh, that moment of vulnerability where, you know, he, and, and it's not even vulnerability. There's a moment of truthfulness, I guess, because Patrick knows the bartender and he's clearly been there. And he clearly, like, he, he even says, like, I can't be seen, I can't be seen there or whatever. Uh, he knows this place. He knows this, this person. He clearly knows, like, the owners or whatever because he mm-hmm. calls in a favor at the end. Um, and that part about him is kind of like it's intriguing because it shows you that it's a f- like he like the way that he's like kind of like living his life is a farce like it's not yeah. really truly who he is um so yeah so that's the first time they kind of both let the mask slip and that kind of theme of music being this escape for cat and being a place where she can truly be herself does go throughout the film with like her dancing at the party and just totally just completely forgetting you know who she is who she's trying to be all that kind of all that kind of stuff and then also uh at you know whenever she's you know playing the guitar she also you know admits to patrick that she wants she wants to be in a band like i could do this i could play in a band uh which is i think it's a it's great you know it's basically it's the first time that she voices that to someone possibly and because she voices it she immediately follows up on it all of a sudden she's made it a a reality and that's when she goes to the music store and starts you know playing i think it's a bass um and thinking oh i could actually do this uh so i I think that that's a very uh forward thinking progressive part of the story that i really like is the the music uh music being you know inspirational and creative kind of energy so, yeah, I think I think it also it also possibly comes out of the setting a little bit because um, the, the, oh, yeah. the, the the bands that they are featured in it are uh, I think it's Letters to Cleo and Save Ferris. Right. So like they're mm-hmm. very like of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, at, but like the. Th- there's a lot of movies where it's like the, you know, like a lot of these teen movies where it's sort of like middle America or like um, actually a lot of them tend to take place like on the, the, in the Northeast. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, what with this one being in Seattle, it's actually plausible that these bands would be around and that she would be able to go to a venue and see them play. Um, <laughs> which, which is like, not usually the case. Uh, right. Usually it's like, why, why is this band that is very popular right now in this weird small town in Northern Maine? Right. Like <laughs> it, it, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but, but in right. this one, it's like, it's like, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This makes sense. They live in Seattle. Right. Like, right. and so, and so she would, if she was into music, she would very much be into the punk, uh, yeah. sort of that punk ska sort of scene right if you if either you live in 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 the pacific northwest or northern california i think like that's a that's a very that's a very uh logical uh place for that to to end up so i think that that's informed by that a little bit i Mm -hmm. i'd be curious to know like like chicken and the egg which one of those came first in the story Mm is like was it always set in seattle 
uh, or, you know, did they have this elements of it? And then they went, well, where should we set it then? Right. Um, where, 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 cause right. The, the other part of this, that's weird about it being in Seattle is that not actually a place where a lot of filming happens, right? Like we do a mm-hmm. lot in Vancouver, but Vancouver never plays itself in anything, right? Vancouver no, is always York, used yeah. as a, like it, even like when you want to film, if your setting is Seattle, you film in Vancouver and then you <laughs> go to Seattle for like a weekend and pick up a couple of shots in front of the Space Needle or downtown, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, like this 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 movie is both set and shot there, which I think is really interesting. Um, yeah, I didn't catch that from like looking at any kind of behind the scenes stuff in terms of yeah. what they wrote for it, where it to be. I do know that it seems like in the script that they were leaning more towards Cat being interested in uh, more traditional early '90s female punk bands, hmm. whereas like it, obviously in the in the movie, um, it's like you said, it's more ska kind of oriented music which is more popular in that time and place so so yeah i don't know it could be it could be either but yeah it's all the it's all the discount no doubt uh uh, bands that that cropped up when after no doubt was uh yeah so successful right um that's right yep (laughs) <laughs> love love it or hate it. I mean, like I am, but because of the age that I am, I am a, a massive fan of No Doubt, which I have a difficult time reconciling with who Gwen Stefani has become. But that's all right. It's fine. It's yeah, fine. I loved it back then too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so those songs are very nostalgic for me. But uh, but yeah, that's so uh, funny. Uh, so I that's that's where my little bit of judgment there came from of them being discount, yeah. No Doubt uh, cover bands, basically. But uh, uh, but yeah, it was like that was like the 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 alt music of the time yeah sure. definitely yeah i think it does it does the job well in getting across like who cat is and kind yeah. of this alternate alternate alternative subculture that's going on in like teendom at the yeah, time she she has to be alt enough from like the spice girls and backstreet boys that everybody right. else was into but without being alienating right so yes. that's where like it, she, it couldn't be you know, uh, that, that she was into like Joan Jett or something like that, which is what the character really would have been like, is like, yeah, like you're saying like eighties, early nineties, uh, yes. uh, femme punk, right? Like that's, it would have been, would have been uh, more along those lines. Um, yeah. but, but that would have been alienating for their core demographic, which was exactly. the girl power spice girl generation yep. who they were selling this movie to right so you got it yep. you have to find that middle ground which is what they found with that music yeah um, they did a good job at that too with uh bianca's character and how you know she starts out in the movie saying you know i love my you know i can't remember the brand but then she's like sketchers her sketchers yeah. she loves her sketchers uh, no she likes like, her sketchers, i like but she yeah. loves her prada prada backpack like, yeah. yeah and then the girl her chastity is like well but I love mine. And she's like, that's because you don't have a Prada backpack. Like yeah. it was so perfect. It was tiny, 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 but it was so funny uh, for that, for that time. But then also, you know, her arc, Bianca's arc yeah. to, you know, not really caring about those things and, you know, looking around at the people, the people that truly mean something to her, like her sister and Cameron, yeah. it's like, okay, those things don't, don't really matter anymore. And th- all those things were just for her to impress uh, very specific people at the school, you know, in the society and what it, what it represents and all yeah. that. So, well, I think it, it automatically puts her into the category of, of 
um um oh who's the lead character in clueless is it Cher? is that her name yeah sure yeah yeah so it's like 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 that's the sort of thing that like that was like a line that you would take out of the movie clueless and and, yeah you know like in order to establish that that's the type of character that she is right Um, exactly exactly yeah totally and that's very similar in terms of like yeah themes and everything for that movie which i think they handle that kind of stuff really well i think both of those movies handle you know uh it's not it's not fully addressing like consumerism and it's not fully addressing like the issues in terms of like solving them or or, yeah. or providing solutions for them but it, which you know it's a teen movie why would it but it does call things out very clearly like with when cat you know says uh distracts them from their consumerist me- me- meaningless lives or something like meaningless consumer driven lives yeah. uh, um and they kind of repeat that to her. They say it before she can say it because she said it a thousand times. Uh, but Kat's right. And and, and yeah. it's funny, like, you know, they butt up against each other. But at the end of the story, it's like they have to accept that they're both right and that they they both can learn something from each other. Uh, like two things can be true at the same time. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. it's just a very uh, trans transformative narrative i think uh which is i always like transformative narratives it's like my my thing (laughs) (laughs) so um another thing i you know thought about a lot which um comes up a lot in shakespeare is you know kind of the theme of masks and mistaken identity and anybody that's familiar with mistaken identity is like typically you know like, or I would say, if you know about Shakespeare, you know about mistaken identity. Like, it's hmm. essential to his comedies. And basically where it comes from is, and I promise this can, I know immediately it's like, how does this connect to 10 things? There's no mistaken identity in 10 things, but there is, and I will explain why. <laughs> so in Shakespeare, obviously, Shakespeare's time, there's like no photos of people, only certain noble people had like portraits that were made of them. And those were typically behind closed doors in private settings. So you didn't have like, you know, you heard of people's names, you heard them described, you might have seen a portrait of them once. Um, You might have seen them once, but you don't have like a way to confirm their identity readily on hand. So a lot of Shakespeare's plays mess with this idea of, I just saw so-and-so in this place. Um, so he's like right around the corner or whatever. And, you know, then the this person who was just told that goes to find that person, but finds a person, somebody else, they know them under a different name. Oh, have you seen so-and-so? And this person is playing two people and they're like, oh yeah, uh, let me go get him. So a lot of this happens And it's obviously played up to be really, really funny. But thematically, what it does, it's like, how do I say this? So practically what it's doing is it's having one person pretend to be another, even around people that are familiar with their, with their, you know, fake name or their real name. And so he does this like with twins and like comedy of errors, you know, he does it in Twelfth Night. If people are familiar with She's the Man, that was also written by Karen and Kristen. And what it does in in terms of like the theme is it provides a shortcut to empathy and vulnerability. Because if you 
are pretending you're someone you're not. And if you're, you know, saying like, oh, like we're pretending we're in love or let's switch places or, you know, I'm going to pretend to be a nobleman when I'm actually a peasant. If you do that, and and especially in fiction, you're using your imagination, you're adapting, you're improvising. It's a creative practice, which allows you to experience empathy. What if I were different? What if I were somebody else that Mm. I could get what I wanted? But as soon as you pretend to be that person, then a part of you has become that person because you've kind of shared that experience. Typically, if you share that experience with someone else of being this other person, then you can't change that experience that that happened. And now you yourself has had that experience as that other person with this other person. So it becomes a part of you. So the fun thing about like mistaken identity and what it does, it just allows people to have a mask uh, that slowly becomes a part of who they are. And then by the end of the story, they can't necessarily like the mask is off, but the mask like gave them something new. It gave them a new part of who they are and it will always stay with them. And that's what happens in this. That's what happens to Patrick even kind of happens to Cameron in a way because he Mm -hmm. pretends to, you know, be her tutor. And that kind of gives him a little bit of authority in a way. Uh, It's again, it's all pretend It's pretend authority. Um, But there is some kind of semblance of it. He's like confident and that his plan's going to work. And because of that, you know, uh, she finds that attractive. She finds his confidence attractive and that's, you know, part of, part of the reason why she kisses him because he's so sure. And when Patrick and Kat, you know, their whole thing is about trying to be themselves, like trying to stay true to who they are, despite what the world wants of them, what the world expects of them. They are hard headed and they want to stay true to who they are. But when Patrick pretends to not let, you know, cat bother him and not be annoyed by her and just like keep pursuing her no matter what, then it changes who he is hmm. from the inside out. It's like literally like if you pretend to feel something you don't feel, you're going to, you're going to eventually feel it, you know? Um, and whether that's a literal or figurative or symbolic, you know, that depends on the story, but, but yeah, my favorite lines um, that kind of show a lot of this is Cat, Cat saying to Bianca, "You don't always have to be who they want you to be." And then Patrick says to Cameron in a different scene, "Don't let anyone ever make you feel like you don't deserve what you want." Um, so Patrick is like talking about what he wants, you know. And he's mm. he's pursuing Cat in a in a pretend way at, at the time when he says this, but it automatically gives us a little insight to what Patrick actually wants because he keeps pursuing Cat. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then same thing with like Cat to Bianca. You know, you don't always have to be who they who they want you to be. And when she's talking about they, it's loaded. Like it's very much loaded. 
Um, it's not about her dad. It's about, you know, Joey. It's about the other kids at school. It's about society. Um, but she is slowly in that moment, she's slowly breaking down her walls to really ask herself, well, what, who do I want to be? Um, and that's, you know, she wants to be a musician and she wants someone to lean on. She wants someone to support her. So it's like, yeah, they're both really like headstrong and all that, but they, this is what helps them gravitate towards each other through the story is because they're actually really, 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 really similar. And that's also called out with um, Patrick. He says, so what's your excuse? Kat says four. And he goes, acting the way we do. He doesn't say acting the way you do. He says acting the way we do. Yeah. Like, why are you antisocial? Why do you act like this? Why do you push people away? Like, why do we do this? Um, and again, it's just, it's holding a mirror up to himself ultimately because he wants to know what she says because he thinks he knows, he thinks he knows how he feels, but it's going to make him understand more if he hears it coming from her. I think that's really lovely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, there's an interesting self-awareness to his character, right? Like, like I said before, when she, when she, you know, points out his self-assuredness and he's like, yeah, like, but um, like he's like I think there's just there's a maturity to his character that the other characters don't have. We don't really get the backstory. We get a little tiny bit of it when he tells her where where he was for that missing year, right? Yeah. Um, and so we 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 <clears throat> you can draw a conclusion of tragedy to that of like, well, I well my grandfather was really ill, so I went and spent the year on his couch, you know. Uh, yeah spaghettios or whatever and it's like well that came to an end at some point and and also he was he had to act as an adult yeah to take care of his grandfather like were there no other adults available yeah so like so you like i think you can draw the conclusion of like well that ended in tragedy his grandfather died like right yeah and then he came back and he's this dark person and 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 all of that stuff but it's just it is it is to keep people at a distance so that he doesn't have to to show them that vulnerability right um but yeah. it's because yeah, the the whole time it's like like he is w- being hired to date her is actually giving him permission to be the person that mm-hmm. he actually is, right? Like this yeah. person that that he says that he's pretending to be is actually the person without the mask, right? Like it's yeah. it's it's actually the mask off. Um, and we see that in those moments you pointed out the moment when he says to Cameron, like, "Don't don't let anybody tell you." Uh, uh, that you can't go after what you want, right? Like, yeah, it, it, like that's that's the real person. That whole sequence uh, from the party is like that's that's the real Patrick. Yeah, that, right. Um, yeah. In the midst of everybody else, they've they have they've got their facades on full up because it's a social situation, right? So everybody's <laughs> pretending to be something that they're not. But but that's funny because it's in the moment when he sort of drops everything because everybody's drunk. So he doesn't have to protect himself anymore. Right. Like there's a, <laughs> um, as, as a person who, who does not drink and who has never really drank, I can tell you that like to be the sober person at a house party, um, it, you, <laughs> you, you get a, you get a very interesting perspective on everybody yes, else. But, that's uh, very true. <laughs> um, I said, I asked Crystal last night, I was like, do is this even a thing anymore? Like, do kids do this? Yeah. Like, is because I just don't hear about like you know, ragers going yeah. on anymore. I don't. I don't know. Has social media yeah. 
kind of destroyed it because I think that it has. Um, I think so. Yeah, because there's like, no when there's was... no anonymity, right? Like you can't go no. to a party, a house party, and it's like, well, there would be pictures on social media the next day, and you know the, I don't know the legality that's literally of it would be tricky. But oh, that's literally like in college uh, when me and my now husband were dating, uh, we had gone back home to our hometown. And we had just, we had just recently started dating and the, I didn't know where he was one night. And then the next morning, a picture popped up on Facebook that he was in. Um, and it was a rager. I'll tell you that it was, <laughs> it was definitely a rager. And I like, it was one of, you know, one of the many times that we were like, okay, what, what's like, let's, let's figure this out. Like, you know, uh, but poor guy didn't even want to be there he was drunk there by one of his friends and then he yeah. had this awful incriminating photo of him on the internet the next day so that was just the beginning i think of the end of ragers yeah. uh actually and to and to tell you it, it wasn't just a it was a no clothes party they used Ooh. to do those <laughs> did you ever hear of those yes yeah I've, yeah I've yeah seen, I, well, I mean i've seen pictures <laughs> right well yeah. so have i <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but uh no I've never been to one but yeah it's like still even even I think that was in 20 like 2010 2011 yeah. um yeah that that was still going on but yeah I think social media s- essentially killed it which is unfortunate because you know people it, mistakes are mistakes you know you should make all your mistakes then ultimately mm. ultimately you know like in a in a safe way um but I don't, yeah, some people will disagree with that. But yeah, it's really <laughs> funny watching it last night. I was like, like, yeah, like this is, this is realistic in a way. Like, obviously you don't have a DJ. Uh, yeah. Not everyone's drinking necessarily out of solo cups or drinking out of whatever they can get their hands on. And it was probably a lot more sloppy and weird and awkward. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's pretty much dead. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. house parties were never as much fun as everybody expected them to be. It would, no, just no. Just being a bunch of people drunk shouting things and then other people just sort of sitting in corners wondering. I had some good ones in college. Things. College was great. High school? No, 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 no. Yeah. No, the high school <laughs> ones are terrible. The high school ones are awful. But but American Pie and, and you know, uh, 10 Things I Hate About You and like all these movies made us think that we were supposed to be at these parties every weekend. And that they if did. you weren't at the party, then you were then you were uncool. Uh, it was a thing. Yeah. It really was. Like, it, yeah, so strange. But but yeah, so that was a, that was a yeah. fun segue. <laughs> Uh, I just have a couple more notes uh, until we yeah. can get to like kind of our big summary about the Heath Ledger series, which I'm excited about. Um, so, yeah, I think like the ultimate, the ultimate thing about everybody kind of, and and I usually say this when I talk about like hero's journey and you know kind of the mythology of love stories. Uh, when you when you decide to like go on a journey you could either be doing it reluctantly or you know with cat it kind of happens to her that he kind of pulls her along on this journey with patrick he is you know the reluctant hero being dragged into something but ultimately like he does make a choice to go along with it hmm. um and and you know same thing with you know, bianca and cameron they kind of they at some point they make this choice to to be on this journey together and what happens is you bump into this other person and this 
I love this part of Hero's Journeys. I think it's kind of the most spectacular part of Hero's Journeys that uh, have a love story is the bumping up against someone and challenging them, you know, and being being like, I don't like this about this person. I don't like this about this person, but I like this person, mm-hmm. right? It's totally ironic. It doesn't make any sense. It Because what what's happening to you is like you're seeing, you're either projecting, like you're seeing a part of yourself in this other person that that bothers you because you're seeing a part of yourself that you don't necessarily, you haven't contended with, you haven't completely resolved it or whatever. Or, or it's the opposite of you and you don't understand it. And that, that's, that bothers you because, you know, typically these stories about young people and they still haven't experienced a lot of the world and something that's different is going to be frustrating because they don't under, like, they don't understand it. And they thought that they understood a lot of these things. Yeah. So ultimately, uh, love is, love is ironic and her ending poem that she that she says which is totally not the same thing at all as the source material it's saying that except for the fact that it's ironic right because Mm -hmm. the original was ironic it's saying that i hate all these things about you like all these things these are i i despise them i despise your combat boots the way that you drive my car etc etc but I don't hate you like and yet I don't hate you and it's like there's a quote from like a book if anybody's familiar with uh Patrick Rothfuss the name of the wind and the wise man's fear which I guess he's never gonna finish it but we've been waiting for years um there's a quote that where he says where the main character uh quote says that uh to love a person despite right despite Mm -hmm. That's that's what true love actually is. And that's exactly what's being expressed in this poem is that, you know, I, I hate all these things about you, but despite that, like, no, I still love you. So I think it's a lovely way to kind of transcend the the old narrative. It's a transformative story, even without like thinking of the meta uh the, the meta of the of the original source material existing because you know what makes it meta is the idea that you're adapting the source material so people are going and thinking thinking one thing and they're coming out going like well that's not the same story but it it is uh structurally the same the same story except for the mm-hmm. except for the tale within a tale uh but it's transformative and it's transcending uh, the original narrative by having Kat actually fall in love um, and their courtship being about them breaking down each other's vulnerabilities and kind of in a way like taming each other because they Mm -hmm. were both shrewish, you know? So I think, I think, I think uh, the, the, the connection back into the source material comes, uh, you have, you have to bring the, the relationship with the father into it. Right. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the dad is very domineering, right? Like he's, he's very controlling. Um, and, and one of the, the, the humorous aspects of that is that, um, cat is much more like him 
than uh, than she wants to admit because she like the thing about the thing about Patrick that she ends up being in love with that when she talks about all of these things that drive her nuts, these things that she hates, a lot of it is to do with his independence, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot of it is to do with the way that he is not conforming. He is, he is not, he doesn't just do things because other people expect him to. Um, In fact, he's, he can tend to be a little bit counter to that, which is exactly the same person that she is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so you're saying like, it's the things that she sees in herself that she's actually kind of like, you know, that everybody else criticizes about her. So she sees it in him. And so it drives her nuts. Right. Because she's been told that they're bad things. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's, it is that conversation that she has with her dad on the porch where he comes in, he talks about, you know, it's like, you know, your sister still lets me play a few innings. I've been on the bench with you and now I won't even be able to watch the game. Right. Like, yeah. And it's so funny because, uh, you know, obviously when this movie came out 1999, I was like 14 years old. Now I am 38. I will be 39 in a few months. Uh, I'm approaching my forties. I watch movies like this. And then the, you know, if, if it's a well-written parent, uh, I find myself relating very hard to the things that they're saying. Yeah. Now, I I do not intend to be the type of uh, girl dad that that uh, that uh, Mr. Strat Doctor Stratford. We should we should be respectful. He is <laughs> he is an OB, obviously. Um, <laughs> I don't intend to be that that controlling. As a matter of fact, my my approach to it is I will just teach them to handle themselves, and then um, you know. Uh, should should they choose to end up with boys i will just have sympathy for those boys because if they try and do anything that they shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. uh they'll they'll probably end up regretting it but uh, yeah. uh that that's my approach is that i'll just give yeah. them the tools to to handle themselves um which yeah. is ultimately what the what what their dad is doing he just mm-hmm. goes about it from a very comically uh, uh pig-headed way right yeah um but what he comes to her at the end and says is like, I have to let go of this control, but I want you to understand how difficult that is. Mm-hmm. And it's because that control isn't coming from a place of, of uh, disrespect or, uh, you know, hatred or even like, like looking down upon it is, it is coming from the place that, that, a father's love comes from which is is protection right and yeah um like it because it is your job i mean i have this conversation with my girl there's so little right now but even still um you know you're 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 telling them to stop doing something do like like hey get down from there don't do that don't, like that's dangerous mm-hmm. and then they're like they have the attitude of like you're just being controlling or they don't have words for it, but they do still have that attitude of like, stop telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm trying to teach you how to not make mistakes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and, and you, like you said before, it's like, like we have to make mistakes. It's part of growing up, but right. as a parent, um, you still like, you still, you have that very, very bad job of, of, of having to protect somebody who wants to, put themselves in danger constantly. Yeah. Um, 
So he comes to her and he's like, he's like, listen, listen, like this is difficult. It's hard. And at a certain point, and he doesn't have the context of it because he doesn't know the story with Joey, but he obviously recognizes that it happened. Something happened. She changed. The mom left. This happened. Obviously, these happened very close together. Um, And so, you know, like he's like, like at a certain point, you just started taking care of yourself. And so yeah. I become obsolete. And when I become obsolete, especially like this is very much a part of male identity within a, a family hierarchy is like, if I am not of use, then I am useless. Right. Yeah. So right. Um, it, like, if there are not things that I can check off a checklist that I'm doing, then what is the point of my existence? I am, I don't have a, a use in the family anymore. Yeah. Uh, I am not loved anymore. Right. So that's where mm-hmm. he's coming from. And she's very much like that. So her relationship with Patrick is very much like, like you will not be controlled yet. I want to control everything around me. I want to control the classroom. And that's why my teacher hates me. I want to control my relationship with my sister. And that's why she hates me. I want like she, every, she's constantly trying to control the environment. Um, right. And then here comes Patrick who is like, I will not be controlled. As a matter of fact, I'm going to run counter to everything that you want me to do. I'm going to show up in places unexpectedly. Uh, I am going to know what you're going to say before you say it, which is really frustrating, <laughs> right? Like, like he, he comes in and like, you know, upsets the Shake. apple cart. Right. Yeah. Like, he shakes things up. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Which she hates but also needs and wants and ultimately her surrender, which is the, 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 where it ties back into the source material. It was a long walk to get back to this, but her, her surrender, like her father's surrender is, is letting go of that control. Right. So in the source material, the surrender is, is, is the farce of, Oh, you, you like, we should, you know, let your, 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 your husband be your king sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But in this one, in, in this modern context of 1999 contemporary, we should say it's no longer modern. Um, so in the contemporary context of 1999 for this story, that looks like I actually, I actually should allow other people to take care of me. Yes. I should allow my father to take care of me. I should allow my sister to take care of me. I should allow, uh, allow, my partner to take care of me. Right. So that's, mm-hmm. that's ultimately what she's, what she has to let go of. And that's, I think where the breakdown comes when she's reading her poem is that mm-hmm. is her realization of like, I actually like, and that's vulnerability, right? Allowing somebody yep. else to nurture and care for you is allowing somebody else to see your weakness. Right. Oh um, yeah. 100%. And, then, and then he meets that, right? Like the next scene with them is him meeting that and be like, I bought you the guitar. Right. Which is like something that she was unable to do for herself, not because financially she couldn't. Right. But because she couldn't tell her dad, this is what I want. This is what I want to be. Right. Right. Um, Despite all of this independence that she has, she can't actually voice that truth. And then he goes out, like takes that extra step and goes like, well, if you're going to be in a band, you're going to need a guitar. And so, (laughs) you know, it's his it's him prostrating himself as well. He's he's, you know, saying like, I like, forgive me. Yeah, I all of the money that I got, he gave me three hundred bucks. I went and I bought you this guitar, right? Like, <laughs> um, so yeah, I did the bad thing, but here I've used it to, to not for myself. Like, yeah, like he's, it's 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 a very nice way of actually wrapping that up from a, it from is. a writing perspective, right? Because yeah. there's no explanation needed. It's just like it's a it's a single action 
um and no words are exchanged in 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 him really being like you know i took the money and i did the good i did the right thing and like he he doesn't he just says like well you know i had i had this money lying around sort of thing um yeah it also like it also communicates that like it's Joey's money. So immediately mm-hmm. you're like, Oh, this also resolves a little bit in the thematic way, like about yeah. what Joey did to cat because yeah. Yeah. the money gets back around to her. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. it's great. It does. It wraps it up with it's, a little bow. Yeah. 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 No, it's very good. Yeah. So I don't know. That's, that's, I think that that's the male perspective that I can bring is, I think that was really interesting. Yeah. But that's when I watched it, I was like, that's, that's sort of what I got there at the end. I actually really like that scene with the dad, like, because he's, he's all, if not for the comedy and if not for that scene, he would be villainous. Right. But, Mm -hmm. but he's not. And there's one of the things that I actually really like about, about the whole movie is that they're, actually isn't a bad guy as much as like joey is an antagonist he's not a he's never a villain right right um he is he he doesn't understand the damage that he's doing he's he's ignorant to it um which isn't a good thing it's not a redeeming quality and it's not an excuse but it's i it allows us to be a little bit sympathetic to him it's like well he's an idiot yeah he's right? just like, stupid yeah exactly exactly and and then and then chastity similarly is like when when she basically betrays bianca it's like well she's stupid too right <laughs> like and like we've we've seen that throughout throughout the story is that like she she is the thing that 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 michael at the beginning actually like calls bianca yes right like this yes thing. well because because so, bianca's moved on i mean bianca yeah. has learned from her relationship with Cameron, like what it means to actually yep. care about someone else and look after someone else and all of that. Whereas like before she was just, and, and like Chastity and Joey just focusing on these materialistic things yep. um, and wanting people, other people to like them for like this fake persona, as opposed to liking them for who they, they really are. Cause, so. Cause Shakespeare loves a foil, right? Like that yes. is, that is, I, and I, I mean, so do I. Like, I, it's it is. I think one of the most effective literary devices is to have, like, in order to show us where our hero is at, we have to have the counterpart. We have to have the antithesis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to be representative, right? Like, it's it's because uh, it's just it's the clearest way to show mm-hmm. that somebody has either fallen from grace or risen to new heights, right? Like, <laughs> is to have that comparison, to have that other character. I, I, that, that we compare them to and go like, Oh, look how far our hero has come compared to this person that they were exactly like at the beginning of the story. Um, yeah. Cause there's also like a power vacuum now because like if Bianca steps down from being this, you know, perfect, pretty princess, yeah. um, then that chastity is right there waiting to, to fill it up. That's also a pretty common theme, especially in these stories. Yeah. Totally. Yep. Cool. So. I, that, does that bring us to the end? Does that does that bring us to 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 the wrap up of our Heath Ledger uh, uh, trilogy here? It does, and I have some things that I would love like to summarize, like this yeah. kind of journey that we've been on. Um, which you know, I I think it was a brilliant idea. Uh, thanks for the thanks yeah. for the push to do this. This was so much fun. Uh, but yeah, so let's talk about kind of what these movies uh 
sort of have in common uh, and how to like if you ever go and try to watch like the trilogy trilogy like how you should kind of go about like watching it or thinking about it as you're watching it because I think that it makes it so much more um, it's so much more of like an exercise it's like you get a lot out of it if you mm-hmm. if you can kind of think about these things that they have in common so uh, obviously we talked about you know the fact that you know, it has the mistaken identity and the masks and all of that. They have that in common. Uh, all three movies, they draw on like similar themes in general. Like they all have historical context or like some sort of historical fictional context. Uh, and like, so we'll go back to A Knight's Tale, which was, you know, the historical fiction was uh, the Canterbury Tales mm-hmm. uh, from the 13, 1390s. Casanova was obviously based on Casanova's life and his legend, mostly like the fictional legend of Casanova from the 1700s. And then Taming of the Shrew or 10 Things and Taming of the Shrew uh, from the 1590s. Uh, so obviously very different points in time, but ultimately, you know, are, are in terms of like movies that were made during, you know, like in Heath Ledger's uh, time on earth like it's fascinating that he ended up mm-hmm. in all of these in all these films really fascinating and mythologically we talked about the you know what it means to kind of put on a mask and to have like this mistaken identity theme uh it's about like you know finding your true self haven't you haven't found your true self you're not willing to see who they are yet you haven't found a person that's your mirror yet you haven't found someone that uh, you can voice things to that kind of bounce back at you and go, wait a minute, like, this is who I actually am. Uh, and so going back to Knight's Tale, we have like William Thatcher. He pretends to be a knight when he was actually a peasant. Right. And then by the end of the story, he becomes a knight. And then you have Casanova, who's pretending to be a nobleman and a philosopher when he was actually a seductress and a heretic. And then by the end of the story, he becomes a lover and an actor, which we talked about when we talked about Casanova, that he was always really an actor, right? Cause he was playing different roles mm-hmm. and pretending to be all these different people. So all those things kind of become a part of him by the end of it. And now we have Patrick who pretends to be amused by Kat's pointed words when he actually dislikes how she acts. But by the end of the story, he falls in love with her and the great part about this one is that what he becomes, because because this is not his story, this is Kat's story, he becomes Kat's. So that's the role that he plays here, is that he becomes kind of like her trophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it kind of flips that story, right? It flips the the hero's journey. Uh, if he you know falls in love with a woman and he gets her in the end, as a reward for being chivalrous, as a reward for being like a good person, uh, this flips it. And it's like, yeah, this was a really rough journey. It was hard to get here. And now we've broken down these two enough to where they can have each other. And, and, but, but most importantly, um, Kat has someone that she can really lean on and, you know, be a, a partner with. So all of these characters, transcend in the end just like their stories are transformative their contemporary stories that Heath Ledger is in are transformative compared to the original story it's based on 
the stories themselves, their contemporary stories are transcendent because they take someone and they go on this whole journey and they incorporate these things into themselves. You know, it's the whole hero's journey thing. And then by the end, we transcend uh, for that character and also for the story itself. So it's pretty cool. (laughs) And I do want to mention too, um, if you want like a, I, I would say like a bonus, like an honorable mention to kind of encapsulate this whole this whole thing this whole trilogy uh go watch the imaginarium of dr parnassus Mm. because it's the same story except that heath ledger died while making it and uh other uh, other male actors had to fill in for him and they wrote into the story that this character that he was playing his face would change when he fell into the imaginarium and so he literally has a mask on that are different actors uh playing this the same character but before it was supposed to just be you know Heath Ledger so really interesting that he uh played these kinds of roles I think and I think it says a lot about him as an actor a lot of people say that he was always he had like an older soul you know and he like packed a lot Mm -hmm. of life into a very short amount of time on earth and one of the things one of the cute stories that the Kristen and karen uh, told was that when they first met heath he was only 18 he just turned 19 for the actual filming of the movie so he was actually you know he was pretty young to be in a high school Mm -hmm. movie because usually actors are into their 20s and they were at a bar And he was able to go up to the bartender and order beers for everyone and never get carded. No one would ask him anything. No one would question him just because his confidence and his swagger, you know, um, just no one, no one cared. So I don't know. He's an interesting man. I'm kind of obsessed uh, with his, his creativity and his like time here. And, And it's sad that like, yeah, it's sad that he didn't get to go on and, create more things that he wanted to do because he was just starting to get into you know making his own stuff yeah uh this is this this is to just kind of drive your point home and mm -hmm. and this thing about him being an old soul uh, Mm -hmm. uh and having that that sort of a mystique about him he was 28 when he died yeah 28 like but I can't he, like like that is such a short amount of time. Like that is I know. like that is so young. That is so tragic. And like you think about like the movies that he had done right before he died. You're talking yeah. about the Dark Knight uh, I, and and Imaginarium. He does not come across in the Dark Knight as a 28 year old as the Joker, no. right? Like that, no. like because I think about a 28 year old, and if I think about a 28 year old, I'm like, ooh, a 28 year old. They don't know anything, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. um. <laughs> Yeah, like like it, like he didn't he didn't even make it to his thirties. Uh, mm-hmm. I that it is it is such mm-hmm. a tragedy, and we are robbed of so much by virtue yeah. of that. You know, because he yeah he would have gone on to to tell such great stories. I think, but yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. There's a great documentary about his life uh, on Prime Video uh, mm-hmm. that I thought was I thought it was excellent. Um, I think it's the only one. A full a full you know fully produced documentary about his life and it's fascinating just seeing that how much he was trying to work with like 
indie artist and how much he was trying to do his own thing and have creative freedom. Um, why he took the roles that he took were ultimately, you know, they're usually about working, you know, with, uh, people who wanted to do different things or, you know, people who are marginalized and whatnot. And yeah, he had a lot, he had a lot to bring to the table. He had, he had, you know, a crazy mind that constantly was going. And I think, and that's ultimately what led to his death because Mm -hmm. he was taking, you know, certain things that would keep him up because he just could not stop. Um, And yeah, it's like, it, it is unfortunate. I think that, you know, like I said before, he had packed so much into like a short amount of time mm-hmm. that we're so blessed with like all of the stuff that he's left that I can still watch these movies and think, oh my God, like I didn't catch that before or I didn't think about this just just based on his performance alone. Yeah. Because he really is like an incredible actor and he packs so much into like the smallest things. It's not even like, you know, we talk about Adam Driver has these like mi- micro expressions. Uh, that are brilliant, but Heath Ledger has a charisma about him that is mm-hmm. no one, no one can, no one can compare, honestly. So, but yeah, so Heath Ledger trilogy series. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, stuff. this has been this has been so much fun. I just got a five minute warning uh, I, that chaos okay. is about to erupt in my house. Which, which it's perfect forever. timing. It's we perfect timing. Forever. So yeah. We're good. Um, no, this was awesome. The uh, the the great thing now is that whatever perfect ten we do next, uh, the 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 field is wide open. So because um, because we we've completed this this uh, this task, um, but uh, yeah, this it was so much fun. Uh, it was so great to have you back again. I I as as always, I will I will again as I did at the at the beginning of the episode recommend that everybody go check out Ty's videos over on YouTube uh, on the Wit and Folly channel because um, there's just so much there to uh, to dig into. I the, your your latest one the 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 shark is that your latest one? Yeah, one about sharks. Yeah, I yeah. I uh, uh, it's fantastic. I I I too love shark movies. So I yeah, it, it was yeah. such a such a great uh, deep dive pun intended on that one. Uh, mm-hmm. in, into that genre um and i uh, that there's more there than i think people give it credit for as a genre um, yes absolutely that, that, uh, you know really really starting with jaws but but going into all this other stuff so people mm-hmm. should go check that out for sure um as well as obviously there's so much great raylo stuff that you've done Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. Digging into that. <laughs> I, so, so go check all that out. Is there anything else that you want people to check out? Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Pretty I, much I'm it. in a hiatus right now. So, but my last video, yeah. go watch it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, just go back, watch, watch all of them, watch everything from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Awesome. And listen, to, if you haven't listened to our other two episodes, uh, our, our Knight's Tale and Casanova episodes, definitely do that. They are, they are really, really fun. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, I, I, I will just end on this note. I, I, this episode is coming out in February of 2024. We're in the middle of our Patreon pledge drive, um, up on Patreon right now. It's funny cause we're recording this. Like this is actually before I've recorded anything else for the pledge drive. Um, but it won't come out until later in the month, pretty much the, the lat one of the last things that'll come out in the month. Um, but I, that just means that by the time that you're listening to this, 
I, if you're on the, 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 the free feed, the podcast feed and not on Patreon, there is a whole whack of bonus stuff on Patreon now, um, specifically for the pledge drive. And one of those things is a perfect 10 exclusive episode that is only on Patreon. You got to go over to patreon.com slash thunderquack in order to get it. And that is Amanda, uh, Konkin, my co-host from quiver, the green arrow podcast. And I, talking about the perfect 10 that everybody always asks me if I'm going to do. Uh, and that is star Wars specifically a new hope. Uh, so we're, we're, we're doing our perfect hour. We have done time travel. I, I, cause I actually record it tomorrow night, but I, uh, we will have done. It is already released to you guys. Uh, our perfect 10 for star Wars, a new hope alongside that will be a perfect 10 pop quiz on star Wars. Um, and then, and then we've got a whole bunch of other great content, um, that, that is also there. Basically every active podcast on the network, um, has a bonus episode available right now. So that's perfect 10 force perspectives, the Thunderquack podcast, rebel cells, Wampa's Lair, the saga continues all have, um, uh, bonus episodes that are up there. Uh, uh, oh, Epic Marvel podcast is, is another one. Um, and then on top of that, I, I, we've got some other stuff, other bonuses and that sort of thing. I, th- th- that'll be out as well. Um, and, and some new stuff that we're doing. So one of those is, uh, uh, the, the book club, uh, which we're doing over on our discord. So if you go to thunderquack.com slash discord, you'll get the invite to our discord server and you can join us there for, for our book club that we're going to be starting up and, patrons uh get exclusive access to uh like basically our bi-monthly hangout that we'll do to discuss those books so that's a really cool new uh uh, patron perk that uh, that we're launching this month and if we've hit i hope that by this point we've hit some of our milestones but one of them the first one um at 250 dollars a month uh is uh the perfect 10 minutes which is uh shorter episodes of perfect 10 no guest um so for now for these first this first batch it'll just be me doing them but um but but i'm basically opening it up to anybody who's ever been on perfect 10 and anybody who's part of thunderquack to record their own perfect 10 minutes and it is just a 10 minute bite-sized perfect 10 on whatever so i the first one that i'm going to put out is on uh, a movie that is super important to me which is the last starfighter so i so hopefully we've hit that goal and if we've hit that goal then that will be released as well so i but that'll you know what like if we hit that goal that may have been released before this episode even gets out because that'll be on the regular feed so uh, we've got that. We've got a bunch of other goals that we're trying to hit. Um, and, and that's just really to support the the network and uh, all of the, the other podcasts, uh, along with the ones that I do um, the, that are on the network uh, uh, and just grow it and uh, grow the community and all that sort of thing. So if you can head over to patreon.com slash thunderquack and, uh, and help us out over there. Um, and if not, then uh, you can, you can help us by just, uh, going and you know doing the rating and review thing on whatever podcast service especially itunes it's really helpful but even more than that uh sharing the podcast with other people so i i you know those recommendations those referrals do more than any other kind of marketing that we can do so uh, if if there's an episode that you enjoyed that you have some friends that you think that they'd enjoy it please 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 share it and uh, and help us 
get these podcasts out to more people. Our audience is so small right now, but I just know that if, if we just sort of like reach the right people that uh, uh, the stuff that we've been doing, um, we've got some really, really good episodes of perfect 10 that I'm really proud of. So I just, just trying to get those out there to people and, and grow that audience, grow that community as much as possible. Um, but that's it. That's the episode. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Ty, once again, for being with me, uh, on this one. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously we'll have you, you'll be back. You'll be back before the end of the year. I'm sure <laughs> we'll do another one. Um, awesome. Uh, thanks everyone for listening to Thunderquack Perfect 10. If you found joy in today's discussion, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast service and leave a rating or review. Uh, if you want to chat about today's episode, head over to the Discord, as I mentioned before, thunderquack.com slash Discord. Uh, and until next time, remember, it's not about the score. It's about the love. Stay geeky, everyone. Thunderquack Perfect 10 is hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Follow us on Twitter at ThunderquackPod, on Instagram at ThunderquackPodcast, on Facebook at Thunderquack, and join us on Discord at Thunderquack.com slash Discord. Support the podcast by heading to Patreon.com slash Thunderquack to get early access, bonus episodes, and the Thunderquack Perfect 10 pop quiz. Thunderquack Perfect 10 is part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. Thank you.